Uh, the Quarantine Conversation podcast series aims to show what it's like to be an Earth, ocean, or atmospheric scientist. There's a lot of diversity under that umbrella, and not all of our scientists wear lab coats. Today, we're celebrating Honeybee Day and the groundbreaking honey study conducted by UBC's very own uh, Pacific Center for Isotopic and Geochemical Research. Our interviewee today is Dominique Weiss, uh, a geochemist. Um, now, Dominique, uh, in this series, we aim to look at people at different stages in their uh, academic career. Um, so would you consider yourself to be a student, a teacher, a researcher, a hobbyist? I am a teacher. I am a scientist. And I'm obviously not in the early stages of my career. <laughs> you are um, one of our leading scientists, I, I have to say. <laughs> um, now, you are a geochemist. What is a geochemist, or how would you explain that to people? A geochemist, that's how I start the introduction to geochemistry class, is what teach the students how chemistry can be fun. And they all hold their heights, but they actually all realize that chemistry can be fun. So what geochemistry does, it's using some of the chemist tools and especially the behavior of the chemical elements in nature. And when I say in nature, it's as much in rocks, minerals, honey, uh, environment, water. Uh, and, and the behavior of the elements in nature is highly dependent on their position in the periodic table, which is why chemistry becomes is important. When we know that, then we analyze the concentration of elements in these various medium, but we can also analyze the isotopic composition. And what the isotopic composition is, it's it's a not fully valid analogy, but it works for common sense comparison is, is the equivalent of the fingerprint of uh, your methods. For instance, if I analyze the lead isotopic composition um, in my Hawaiian basalts, it's telling me exactly the composition of the source. And it's very unique to Hawaii. So that's the equivalent of the fingerprint. It allows us to trace the source of metals or in, in the case of hawks, the source of mantle plumes, or we can also use these um, isotopic composition to date hawks. That's why we have the absolute ages. Interesting. So how, how do you use um, isotopes to date rocks? I mean, uh, we've we, in the gallery, we have some examples of rocks uh, which are incredibly old. Um, like the, the Acosta Nice, which is four and a half billion years old. Um, but how do we actually know that? So that's what we call in geology, the absolute clock. And that's because some, so elements are made of isotopes. And I'll take uh, the example of lead again. Uh, lead has three isotopes which are lead 208, it has four isotopes actually, 208, 207, 206, 
and 2O4. And so it's the same chemical element, it has the same number of protons in the nucleus, that's what defines the chemical elements, but it has different masses depending on the number of protons. In the case of lead, we have uranium-238 decaying by radioactivity in lead-206, uranium-235 in lead-207, and then we also have thorium-232 decaying in lead-208. This is done with a, with a constant, at the constant rate, which is directly proportional to the number of uranium or thorium atoms present at a given time. So when we measure uranium isotopic composition and concentration in a, in a rock, we measure the lead isotopic composition and we can establish the absolute age of the rock. That's all the Earth has been dated at 4.567 billion years. Mm -hmm. It's using these uh, natural clock, but absolute clock. The, the fundament, depending on the physics laws of radioactive decay, which is that during a given time period, and you need to know the decay constant, which is also people usually know better, uh, the alpha life, which is basically the time it takes for the parents to decay to 50% of what it was initially. It's, it's directly proportional to the decay constant. And, and so that's an absolute clock. That's how we date rocks and okay. minerals. Uh, that's really interesting. Um, it's, it sounds like all rocks on the planet are built with this uh, built-in countdown clock. Basically, yes, it, it's slightly dependent on the composition of the, the rock or the minerals because obviously there are not too many of these radioactive clocks that we can use. You need either, you need, to, you need enough abundance of the element you're looking at. You need it to be distributed in what you want to analyze. And you also need the half-life to be long enough that you can date your geological event, which as you know, are usually pretty long. Yeah, that's why we can't do carbon dating with our rocks. Uh, we have to rely on more resilient elements, right? Yeah, and carbon dating, actually that's a very good analogy. Carbon dating is uh, as a very short half-life. And that's why carbon dating is mostly only reliable for, let's say, 12,000, 14,000. In the past, people use it to 20,000, but then they realized that the assumption by which they were thinking that um, carbon was 14 was produced was at a constant rate in the atmosphere and it turned out to not be fully valid. And so they had to completely recalibrate the dating. Interesting. <laughs> now, um, you're, you're a specialist in a, a very unique field, um, geochemistry. Um, this isn't a field that we often learn about growing up. So how did you get into geochemistry? Whew. You want the long version or the short version? <laughs> Whichever one you, you prefer to share. Uh, 
Well, I wanted to be a medical doctor for the whole, my whole high school time, actually. I wanted to be useful to society and to solve problems. And then when I get got to the university, I didn't know what I wanted to do anymore. Uh, I didn't want things to be too long. And I registered in math. And then after two days, I decided that mathematics was not my cup of tea because people were too uh, focused to our viewpoint. Uh, so I moved to geography. Uh, don't ask me why geography. I turned an uphole at home by my because my parents were both geography high school teachers and they said you can't do the same thing that we do. Anyway, I did one year geography and then I decided yes, I want more option than being a high school teacher. So I moved to geology. Uh, at the time, I was mostly fascinated with oceanography. I wanted to go at sea, and that's because I had the book of uh, Rachel Carson uh, that really drew my attention, as well as another book that I remember the title of the book, which was Global Ocean. Um, but Belgium is a very small country, it doesn't have many boats, and I went into Geology, I was fascinated at the time by nuclear energy, not by the application, but by the principle. Mm. I had an amazing role model by the name of Sahadaj, who was a sort of a permanent teaching assistant, or let's call a research associate, who was a, a fascinating woman and who uh, introduced me to mass spectrometry, which is how you measure these isotopic composition. And that's where it all started. Excellent. Uh, was she at the same university? Uh, at the same university, and you got to work with her? Yes, it was uh, the university Université Libre de Bruxelles, the Bruxelles, Brussels Free University, mm -hmm. and it was in the geology department. She she had done a postdoc at Caltech, and she had worked on the zircon minerals, which you probably know is one of the best minerals to date. Mm -hmm. It's one of the most uh, resistant minerals and it's a very powerful uh, dating tool. And so Sarah introduced me to how to use a mass spec. And uh, I uh, was tasked for my PhD to develop, to set up the method of lead isotopes in whole hogs. I worked on mantle plumes in um, uh, Atlantic Ocean, um, Ascension Island. I worked on uh, the Seychelles Island, which they thought was also an oceanic island created by mantle plumes. It turns out that uh, it's a piece of Africa. And then I worked on a completely different science question, which was uh, these very strange rocks that are named anorthosites that are mostly constituted by plagioclase that are very common in a given period of the Earth's time scale. And that it's a puzzling, they're also common on the moon. Um, and so the big question was, um, why are these rocks limited to that time period? And uh, mm -hmm. so that's, that's uh, how it all started. And then I was uh, lucky enough to do two postdocs. One in Paris in the laboratory of uh, 
Claude, Claude Allegre and then uh, Marc Javois. That's where I learned stable isotopes, oxygen mostly. And then I went to the California Institute of Technology where I worked with Jay Wasserbrook. Uh, actually both Claude Allegre and Jay Wasserbrook received the Crawford Prize uh, in 1986, uh, which is the equivalent of the Nobel Prize in um, Geology. And so I was trained by these two uh, pioneers uh, in applying uh, these amazing tools to, to various questions. At Caltech, I worked on shirts, you know, these deposits at the bottom of the ocean. And uh, it was very interesting because uh, the idea was to try to reconstruct seawater. People use carbonates, but carbonates don't, are not very common when you go back in time, especially before you, the Cambrian. Okay. And so our idea was to try to do that via church, which didn't work at all because church a very, very low level of strontium, of strontium concentration. And so using uh, church to measure the isotopic composition of seawater was not an easy task. And then church have also a lot of clay minerals, which are basically detrital coming from the continents. And that were completely messing up the signal. But that didn't prevent us from finding all kinds of interesting things, but uh, that's another story. <laughs> well, um, in that really uh, um, fascinating story and uh, really well-accomplished past, um, two things jumped out at me, which are really relevant to what you're doing right now. Um, and, and that's that you went into, um, or you left mathematics because you wanted to be able to bounce around and look at different ideas. And also you've got a long history of using lead isotopes. And um, that was a major part of your recent honey study. Um, would you care to tell us about your recent honey study? Oh yeah, I love to talk about the honey story because it's uh, it has many uh, facets that are fascinating. The first, it, complete, it came completely to a serendipitous conversation with a, a very good friend of mine who had a friend who was the beekeeper for Hives for Humanity in downtown Vancouver. So that was in 2013 or 2014. And Hives for Humanity is this nonprofit organization that had the idea to put beehives in uh, uh, downtown Vancouver, essentially to give motivation to homeless people. And the idea was that they would take care of uh, bees and, and produce honey. And it worked very well. Within a year, they had an amazing production, but they were being laughed at and criticized. And they were being told, "Who? how do you know your honey is clean? And so I said, you know, I can help. Why don't you give me 10 samples? We'll analyze trace metal contents and, and we'll have an idea. One of the questions was also, how do you know if there's no drug in your honey? Obviously that's not what we can analyze, but so we analyzed those 10 samples from various neighborhoods of uh, downtown, including um, Kitsilano and Denver. And we found that the levels were different. Uh, so going towards the center of the city, there were higher levels of uh, lead, but also other metals that could be correlated to and anthropogenic, so human activities. Um, 
I wasn't satisfied though, because they had done the sampling themselves. Uh, and I have to insist that the levels were very, very low. The levels were, even if we could see systematic variations, the levels were in the parts per billion range. And to make an analogy that is more probably not everyday used, but uh, that people can comprehend, it's the equivalent of one drop of water in an Olympic sized swimming pool. Oh, wow. So, and we were between 40 and 140 ppb. So I asked if we could do the sampling again. And that's what, that was the second year. I think at that time I provided vials that were clean by ourselves. So clean um, Teflon vials that had been acid uh, washed uh, in, in our clean laboratories and, and provide some uh, wood spatula so that the, the sampling itself was not going to contaminate. We found the same results. Same, it was consistent. And it was reproducible in the sense that when you go away from the center of the city, the levels decreases. Uh, me being me, I decided why don't we look at lead isotopes to try to see the, the, the source of the lead in these uh, honey. And so we did that and we saw variation. That's when hives for the, humanity took off. And it's also when I found out that there were more than, I think, 17,000 beehives in the city, not only hives for humanity, but just about, there are many, many people who have um, hives in the backyard. And, and, and so many people wanted their honey to be analyzed, which obviously was not something we can do. It's not that simple to analyze honey for different reasons. First, you will need to dissolve it. And to dissolve it, I actually took a bet and we bought a very special uh, microwave oven that cost $50,000 uh, that allows to dissolve the, the organic components uh, because of, otherwise we can't put the, the solution in our instruments. And um, and also the levels are low, so you need to be in clean environment. We got contacted from many directions and that's when I decided I can't cope with all this alone. And I designed a PhD project, which is how Kate Smith came on board. And I was very lucky. At the time I was uh, the PI running Magnet, the multidisciplinary applied geochemistry network focused on geochemistry across Canada, I was, it was very busy. I had, I don't know how many students, 14 or 12 myself. And I said, I can't take any more students. But at the same time, we were fascinated by the results. We wanted to do this, look at that more closely. And uh, Kate approach, we met at the AGU and she had worked in a um, um, government of, um, Wisconsin lab for seven years. She had background, she was perfectly trained and she was the perfect profile to carry on that work. And it turned out that uh, indeed she's the perfect profile to carry on that work. And that's so it, it took this, this uh, 
expansion. Our first paper that was published last year show beautiful patterns in the city of Vancouver. We also have background levels in the island of um, Galliano. We also did Bowen, but Bowen is too close to the city and there are too many ferries going by Bowen Islands. And so the levels are not as low as they are in Galliano. It works very well. Yeah, it produces some really interesting maps where you show um, the invisible impact of human activity uh, on yeah. the natural world. And thanks for explaining how you actually um, uh, reduce the honey down to a, a state where you can feed it into machinery that was designed to deal with metals and, and rocks. <laughs> yeah. But you know, those, in those instruments, those are actually the ones you can see from, from the museum. Um, uh, as long as you have dissolved your samples, as long as you have a solution, you can analyze them. It doesn't really matter what it is. We also analyze water. And the other thing that this instrument can do, which you can do, see from the museum, if you turn by 90 degrees, it can be connected to a laser ablation instrument, which, so there you can analyze um, uh, in situ, and you can do that either on a piece of a mineral, or you can even do it now. We've set it up, we can do that on a thin section. Mm -hmm. So we shoot the laser to having documented carefully by a with a microscope uh, the structure and where we want to analyze. And we can measure either the trace element concentration or and the lead isotopic composition because we can do the two um, simultaneously. We call that the split stream analysis. One part of our beam goes into the quadrupole instrument that analyzes the concentration. And the other part of the beam is going into the high resolution instrument that measures the lead isotopic composition. That's, um, I think you're the first scientist that we've had or we've interviewed yet who actually works with lasers, um, <laughs> which I think is really cool. <laughs> Uh, yeah, there is a story to that too. Go ahead. <laughs> I didn't want to work with a laser ablation because many people want to do laser ablation and I call this quick and dirty. <laughs> and most of the people want very quick and, and very quick results without spending the time to, to calibrate things in details. And you know, for many applications ultimately, that's fine. Um, but when we put in uh, the proposal for the previous Canadian Fund for Innovation um, grant, which was in 2011 or 2012, it's clear that it was the future. You can also analyze the zircon in situ and get its age by uranium lead decay. And so I decided to jump and ask for support for a laser ablation system. And that's how we got our first system. And it's turning incredibly useful because um, many of our colleagues in the department um, want to analyze their samples by laser ablation. Many of the MDRU students and colleagues want to get their ages and uh, composition with the laser ablation. We also collaborate with fisheries 
So Evgeny is a, a member of our department. He's, he has studied the uh, fish and also other organisms living in the sea. He's also the head of fisheries. And um, we decided to do a pilot project, which was uh, carried out by one of my postdocs, Milin Lee, uh, looking at salmon mostly to see if we could use lead isotopes to trace the, the migration or migrator, let's call it migration path of salmon. It, because, you know, the salmons go away, the adult salmon go away in the ocean and they come back two or three years later. People know they go very far away, but they don't have an exact idea of where they go. So the, the original idea of the project was to compare the lead isotopic composition of the salmon with that of the Pacific Ocean water. We also analyzed um, juvenile salmon. The juvenile salmon are these uh, salmon that are very tiny, they're about two, three centimeters long maximum, they're minuscule. Uh, so there we have to analyze the whole body instead of, in the case of the adult salmon, we take a, a piece of a muscle and that's good. But when we analyze, and the juvenile salmon spend their first life in the lake where they were born. And usually, well, in Vancouver, in the in BC, those lakes are fed by um, rain that's coming down the mountains. And the juvenile salmon lead isotopic composition that we discovered was perfectly reflecting the composition of the volcanoes that were just nearby. And why do we know the composition of the volcanoes? It's because at PCIGR, we also studied the Garibaldi belt volcanoes to try to see where they were coming from. So you see, it's all pieces of a puzzle coming together. And the adult salmon, have, the ones that have some lead uh, from anthropogenic sources, basically overlap with the Danton honeys. Uh, and uh, it's all pieces of a puzzle that are coming together, and it's a uh, great fun, actually. Yeah, it really is a bizarre center of a, um, a very interesting Venn diagram between biology and geology and urban um, environment, yeah. and <laughs> it all overlaps in a really interesting way. Now, aside from uh, your honey study and your salmon study, what, what's your proudest discovery? I'm not a proud person. I don't like to toot my own horn. I like having fun in what I'm doing. I'm like, I like providing fun, working with my students. And uh, I, I uh, like, you know, resolving questions. And uh, if one could say if my product accomplishment is probably having put together the Pacific Center for Isotope and Geochemical Research, which is this amazing uh, facility, which is now uh, known world-class and that has a very, very good reputation. I've made a few discoveries, but, but you know, they're not changing the face of the world. And uh, they, even if, Scientifically, they are very interesting, like, you know, having made the proposition that the two, chain, the two, trains of, the two trends of volcanoes in Hawaii are sampling, despite the fact that they're coming from the same mantle plumes, are coming from different parts of the, are sampling different parts of the deep mantle. 
and they stay different from 2,800 kilometers at the Coromandel boundary until they, they reach the surface. Mm -hmm. And again, that was only possible when we had this new generation of instruments, which are called the multi-collector inductively coupled plasma mass spectrometer, because we can analyze uh, lead isotopes with a much uh, better precision. Um, I'm trying to do things, combine science with uh, society-focused question. I mean, that's why the, the HONEY uh, project came into play. I mean, I also have uh, another student who now graduated, Hi Macmillan, who is working on the First Nation uh, questions, mostly questions that are asked by the First Nation and trying how we can help them. And again, in that project, it's all part of a puzzle because we analyze some of the artifacts and belongings from uh, local First Nation types uh, at their request. And having our context of having studied the volcanoes, we could uh, narrow down where these um, howlets were coming from. Mm -hmm. And uh, that was another very fun project. Simple question, simple answer, and a clean answer with the isotopic composition. So it's a uh, it's 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 fun to do that with students, and uh, it's, I, I really enjoy interacting with my graduate students, seeing them, you know, grow up uh, as scientists, as a good human being, caring for the humanity and the environment, and teaching, and um, it's it's all uh, fun. It has to be fun, especially in the current context. Absolutely. By the way, how many grad students do you have right now? Six, seven. Okay. Oh, you're way I don't, down. I don't count. It's, <laughs> yeah, I'm way down. And then, you know, that's a more healthy situation because, you know, managing the, the PCIGR facility is basically a job on its own. And then I have my job of researcher, teacher, and, uh, and advisor, and that's another job. So that's a... Four or five is a good number. Yeah. <laughs> I like a, a group because that allows the students to, to help each other and to work together. It makes it more stimulating. And I'm sure it encourages more of that cross-disciplinary um, research yeah. that you seem to be yeah. so, so keen on. Yeah. Um, what are you doing your research on right now? Because you mentioned that you are still researching. Well, I just submitted a paper on Hawaii. That way, well, I was the first author, which uh, was long overdue. It's, uh, so that was pushing further the study of the dichotomy between the lower side and the chaos side of uh, volcanoes on Hawaii. And uh, basically, with a higher precision and also having analyzed systematically five million years of volcanism on the Hawaiian islands we can see that uh, the structure of the, and the distribution of the geochemical components in these volcanoes is directly, first is coherent geographically and in time, and can be projected. If, when we project that to the Coromandel boundary, we can see a, a distribution that again in, uh, give us some information about the composition of the deep mantle. Mm -hmm. 
Interesting. And the other thing we that uh, so that paper was submitted a month ago. We have a paper that just came out with uh, Kate, myself, and two collaborators in France, where um, and Kate might have talked about that, where we studied the the honey metal concentration and isotopic composition in Paris. That honey was sampled just after the, the fire of Notre Dame. And the idea there was to see if we can trace the, the, the melt, the, 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 lead, the lead that was ejected in the atmosphere. Uh, it turns out that the day of the fire, the a predominant wind in Paris were in an unusual direction. And it was very specific. And this works beautifully. It just came out yesterday in um, us, ESD, Environmental Science and Technology. And uh, that was another very fun project. And did you know- It worked very well. Uh, was there a noticeable uptick in lead in the honey? Yeah, three to five times higher wow. uh, downwind from the far, and so in a now um, angle. Um, this being said, the levels were still very low. It's three to five times higher than than the year before. We had the commercial lead, uh, a commercial honey from Paris called Le Miel de Paris, that uh, I had bought the, um, I had asked the French collaborator to buy the year before, uh, and. Uh, it's it's relative low level. It's not dangerous at all for consumption, but the difference is very significant. Now, here's the the most serious question, of course. Um, who's got the better honey, Vancouver or Paris? Better in terms of taste? I don't know. I only eat honey when I'm sick and I have a very sore throat. Uh, I don't like. Uh, you know, one of the big questions and for which we haven't found a magic answer yet, but it's that's interesting many, many people, is that most of the honey you buy in stores is not pure honey. Uh, as you probably know, honey is made by bees, honeybees. It's a lot of work. They have to forge a lot of um, uh, environment in, in, and that's what makes the beauty of the honey study is that the bees go about two, three kilometers radius and it's a very specific sampling area. But anyways, they have to work a lot to produce honey and honey is expensive. So um, together with olive oil and orange juice, um, honey is one of the most falsified uh, food. So there is a lot of interest in uh, beekeepers to develop tools that allow to trace, to, to assess if honey has been cut with uh, sugar water, which is obviously very much cheaper. And, uh, and all this to say that most of the honey you buy in a store, even some honey that are supposed to be organic have been cut by sugar water. Uh, I have a theory which we might design an experiment to prove, but let's see. I didn't know that. Uh, thanks for letting me know. And I, I look forward to the results of, of this study that you're imagining right now. Well, we'll, we'll see if I do that. I'm not sure it's uh, as much fun as the other ones. So. 
I might, uh, we're going to go back to Salman and, and um, with a new student of mine who is going to come. Actually, that student is supposed to start in September. She is going to do what we call COVID honey. It's not COVID honey, but we decided that in light of the complete shutdown, we should do another sampling in the Vancouver area. And we contacted our beekeepers. And uh, so we wanted to do sampling, you know, and, and one sample per month to see what happened when cars started uh, being more active again. And uh, it's a neat little project. I think I know what the answer is going to be, but it will be nice to show. And then uh, she's going to continue working on the Salman studies again with in collaboration with Evgeny, uh, who has last year, within the frame of the year of the Salman, did a mission in the North Pacific and, and um, towards the Arctic and to study the Salmons from up there and see if we can see any patterns. Kate mentioned uh, the COVID honey experiment yesterday, and I'm really looking forward to the results of that. Um, yeah. I mean, we know the city got cleaner, but it'd be interesting to have an, a number value of how yeah. much cleaner it is. Now, um, with all this work, uh, um, a lot of the, the science gets done in the field, uh, but you seem to have like five different fields. <laughs> um, do you actually physically get out into the field very often? I try to when I can. Obviously, it's not happening this year. I had enough paperwork to do to, to get the labs to function again, the facility being active, and, and uh, that I decided it wasn't worth trying to go. Well, first, I don't want to set a foot in an airplane to start with, despite what the airlines say and the epifilters. By the way, all our labs are clean because we have epi filters, these absolute filters that filter 99.9999% of the particles in the air. So I, we know what we're talking about. I don't believe that the uh, air in airplanes is clean uh, for various reasons. Let's not go there. So I didn't want to go on a plane. Uh, I love going to sample volcanoes. I love taking students on the field, like uh, two years ago when we did the grand finale of um, the magnet program, we took 35 trainees to the big island of Hawaii and uh, we went and um, see an active eruption. That's before the whole uh, Kilauea uh, emptied itself in uh, June, July in uh, 2018, I guess. We were there in February and uh, that was great fun. I must say the day we hiked to the active lava was uh, a bit stressful because first to hiking on lava that may have consolidated the day before, uh, you're taking people who are not all in their best physical shape. Uh, even if you ask everybody to bring four liters of water, some only brought a small bottle and that was clearly not enough because it was very hot from the ground. It was very hot from the top. I had a brand new pair of hiking boots. And at the end of the day, they were destroyed, which just shows, as they were good quality hiking boots, the, the soles was on one side was completely destroyed because it basically got melted away or scratched away by the, the hot lava. Uh, but 
that aside, it was a very memorable event. The whole trip was a memorable event. So I uh, like to go to C2, which I haven't done for a long time. I've gone uh, on the Joides Resolution, the ship of the international, now it's called Integrated Ocean Discovery Program. That basically means you're gone for two months, and that's why I haven't been able to do that recently. I can't really be away from the lab for that long. No, no. Wow. <laughs> um, so, you know, in your questions, you say not all our scientists wear lab coats, but, you know, some scientists can wear lab coats and can also put hiking boots and go on the field and do that. Uh, with the same enthusiasm. Absolutely. I mean, I see you working in your lab at times, and uh, you look like the, the COVID nurses. You're completely covered from. Uh, I love I love being in the lab. I don't have usually when I'm in the lab, it means there is a problem, and they they call me for help. Uh, I would love having more time to spend in the lab rather than having to spend my time raising support and uh, and money and things like that. But um, it's uh, fun. Yeah, and you know, when you know that we analyze concentration at the level of the PPB, we need to be in these clean environments, which is why we have lab coats uh, or shoes there outside. And uh, all our acid have been uh, sub-rolled, so they go to cycles of uh, almost boiling, which means that uh, you separate the impurities from the liquids and we can have very, very clean acids. And it's a very elaborated process. Excellent. Now, um, being in the field, I'm sure some crazy things happen. Um, you talked about how you destroyed a pair of hiking boots <laughs> by walking on a volcano. Uh, what else has happened? Or what's your favorite story from the field? Well, the field has always many favorite stories. The first crazy stories was actually in Hawaii, and that was in vacation. That was not to do field work. But it was in, nine, when, in winter 1985, and we rented the helicopter to go see the lava lake on Kilauea. And the pilot, we rented, no, we had a helicopter with a pilot and, and the pilot was actually also on a mission to try to understand how come on the middle of this lava lake this was this gigantic block of solidified lava that was when I say gigantic it was bus size huh? school bus size gigantic mm -hmm. and so we landed on the side of the, the crater I mean, on the side of the lava lake, it, at the bottom of the crater, on the side of the lava lake, on what was solid. And two things happen. The helicopter starts sinking into the lava that was not fully solidified, and our shoe soles melted, especially the pilot. No need to say that we left from there very fast. Luckily, we left without any problem, but uh, that was a, a very interesting experience, uh, very memorable. Um, you know, there are many experiences like when uh, we went to sample, so there that I was on a boat and uh, we were doing our sampling 
not on the islands of Hawaii, but at the bottom of the ocean. And for that, we were using uh, JSON, the remotely operated vehicle. So you, you spent your time in a container with a, a whole thing like uh, Houston with all kinds of screen and uh, that's how you control uh, JSON going down. JSON can do, go down to 6,000 meters at the bottom of the ocean. And uh, well, the idea was to have a continuous section of lava. I mean, we have a time constraints on, on the composition. Well, first, it's not easy to get a sample with a metal arm because if you want if you want a time constraint, you need to have your sample in place. And so we had to took I think our maximum was six hours to get one sample. But the yeah, it's a patient's game. The other thing that we were trying to do in that same course was to retrieve Hugo. Hugo was the Hawaiian Underwater Geophysical Observatory. And it was just a, just in quote, a big metal frame about one and a half meter by one meter by one meter that was containing a telephone relay. And the idea of Hugo was to hear the, to listen to the volcano Loi, which is the most, I mean, which is basically building up at the bottom of the ocean and that's gonna come to the surface probably in between 400 and 500,000 years. And uh, the cable had been cut between the land and Hugo, and so Hugo was useless. And we had to retrieve Hugo, and uh, which turns out that was in two years, Hugo had sank in um, the sediments by about two thirds, and nobody had designed this observatory, this, this observatory to be retrieved. So the first thing we had to do was to attach uh, a metal ring so that Hugo could be uh, attached to the, the cable and pulled to the surface. Uh, that turned out to be a challenge and uh, the pilot of Jason became frustrated and decided to use the mechanical arm as a hammer to put the, the ring in place, broke the mechanical arm so we had lost our best tool to sample hawks and that cost $200,000 and a week waiting to get a replacement. Oh. That's the adventures on the We also analyzed um, juvenile salmon. The juvenile salmon are these uh, salmon that are very tiny, they're about two, three centimeters long maximum, it's a minuscule. Uh, so there we have to analyze the whole body instead of, in the case of the adult salmon, we take a, a piece of a muscle and that's good. But when we analyze, and the juvenile salmon spend their first life in the lake where they were born. And usually, well, in Vancouver, in, the, in BC, those lakes are fed by um, rain that's coming down the mountains. And the juvenile salmon, lead isotopic composition that we discovered was perfectly reflecting the composition of the volcanoes that were just nearby. And why do we know the composition of the volcanoes? It's because at PCIGR, we also studied the Garibaldi belt volcanoes to try to see where they were coming from. 
So you see, it's all pieces of a puzzle coming together. And the adult salmon have the ones that have some lead uh, from anthropogenic sources basically overlap with the Danton honeys. Uh, and uh, it's all pieces of a puzzle that are coming together. And it's a great fun, actually. Yeah, it really is a bizarre center of a, um, a very interesting Venn diagram between biology and geology and urban um, environment. Yeah. And <laughs> it all overlaps in a really interesting way. Now, aside from uh, your honey study and your salmon study, what What's your proudest discovery? I'm not a proud person. I don't like to toot my own horn. I like having fun in what I'm doing. I'm like, I like providing fun, working with my students. And uh, I, I uh, like, you know, resolving questions. And uh, if one could say if my proudest accomplishment is probably having put together the Pacific Center for Isotope and Geochemical Research, which is this amazing uh, facility, which is now uh, known world class and that has a very, very good reputation. I've made a few discoveries, but, but you know, they're not changing the face of the world. And uh, they, even if Scientifically, they are very interesting. Like you know, having made the proposition that the two chain, the two trains of the two trends of volcanoes in Hawaii are sampling, despite the fact that they're coming from the same mantle plumes, are coming from different parts of the are sampling different parts of the deep mantle, and they stay different from 2,800 kilometers at the core mantle boundary until they, they reach the surface. Mm -hmm. And again, that was only possible when we had this new generation of instruments, which are called the multi-collector inductively coupled plasma mass spectrometer, because we can analyze uh, lead isotopes with a much uh, better precision. Um, I'm trying to do things, combine science with uh, society-focused question. I mean, that's why the, the honey uh, project came into play. I mean, I also have a, another student who now graduated, Hi Macmillan, who is working on the First Nation uh, questions, mostly questions that are asked by the First Nation and trying how we can help them. And again, in that project, it's all part of a puzzle because we analyze some of the artifacts and belongings from a, local First Nation types uh, at their request. And having our context of having studied the volcanoes, we could uh, narrow down where these heads um, were coming from. Mm -hmm. And uh, that was another very fun project. Simple question, simple answer, and a clean answer with the isotopic composition. So it's a uh, it's 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 fun to do that with students, and uh, it's, I, I really enjoy interacting with my graduate students, seeing them, you know, grow up uh, as scientists, as a good human being, caring for the humanity and the environment, and teaching, and um, it's it's all uh, fun. It has to be fun, especially in the current context. Absolutely. By the way, how many grad students do you have right now? 
six, seven. Okay. Oh, you're way I don't, down. I don't count. It's, <laughs> yeah, I'm way down. And then, you know, that's a more healthy situation because, you know, managing the, the PCIGR facility is basically a job on its own. And then I have my job of researcher, teacher, and, uh, and advisor, and that's another job. So that's a, it's a four or five is a good number. Yeah. <laughs> I like a, a group because that allows the students to, to help each other and to work together. It makes it more stimulating. And I'm sure it encourages more of that cross-disciplinary um, research yeah. that you seem to be yeah. so, so keen on. Yeah. Um, what are you doing your research on right now? Because you mentioned that you are still researching. Well, I just submitted a paper on Hawaii. That way, well, I was the first author, which uh, was long overdue. It's, uh, so that was pushing further the study of the dichotomy between the lower side and the Kea side of uh, volcanoes on Hawaii. And uh, basically with our higher precision and also having analyzed systematically five million years of volcanism on the Hawaiian islands, we can see that uh, the structure of the and the distribution of the geochemical components in these volcanoes is directly first is coherent geographically and in time and can be projected if, when we project that to the core mantle boundary, we can see a, a distribution that again in, uh, give us some information about the composition of the deep mantle. Interesting. And the other thing we that uh, so that paper was submitted a month ago. We have a paper that just came out with uh, Kate, myself, and two collaborators in France, where um, and Kate might have talked about that, where we studied the uh, the honey metal concentration and isotopic composition in Paris. That honey was sampled just after the, the fire of Notre Dame. And the idea there was to see if we can trace the, the, the melt, the, the, lead, the lead that was ejected in the atmosphere. Uh, it turns out that the day of the fire, the a predominant wind in Paris were in an unusual direction and it was very specific. And this works beautifully. It just came out yesterday in us um, ESD, Environmental Science and Technology. And uh, that was another very fun project. And did you know- It worked very well. Uh, was there a noticeable uptick in lead in the honey? Yeah, three to five times higher wow. uh, downwind from the far, and so in a now uh, angle. Um, this being said, the levels were still very low. It's three to five times higher than than the year before. We had the commercial lead, uh, a commercial honey from Paris called Le Miel de Paris, that uh, I had bought the, um, I had asked a French collaborator to buy the year before, uh, and. Uh, it's it's relative low level. It's not dangerous at all for consumption, but the difference is very significant. Now, here's the the most serious question, of course. Um, who's got the better honey, Vancouver or Paris? Better in terms of taste, 
I don't know. I only eat only when I'm sick and I have a very sore throat. Uh, I don't like, uh, you know, one of the big questions and for which we haven't found a magic answer yet, but it's, that's interesting many, many people, is that most of the honey you buy in stores is not pure honey. Uh, as you probably know, honey is made by bees, honey bees. It's a lot of work. They have to forage a lot of um, uh, environment, in, in, and that's what makes the beauty of the honey studies that the bees go about two, three kilometers radius, and it's a very specific sampling area. But anyway, they have to work a lot to produce honey, and honey is expensive. So um, together with olive oil and orange juice, um, honey is one of the most falsified uh, food. So there is a lot of interest in uh, beekeepers to develop tools that allow to trace, to, to assess if honey has been cut with uh, sugar water, which is obviously very much cheaper and uh, and all this to say that most of the honey you buy in a store, even some honey that are supposed to be organic, have been cut by sugar water. Uh, I have a theory, which we might design an experiment to prove, but we'll see. I didn't know that. Uh, thanks for letting me know. And I look forward to the results of, of this study that you're imagining right now. Well, we'll, we'll see if I do that. I'm not sure it's uh, as much fun as the other one. So <laughs> I might, I, we're going to go back to Salmon and, and um, with a new student of mine who is going to come. Actually, that student is supposed to start in September. She is going to do what we call COVID honey. It's not COVID honey, but we decided that in light of the complete shutdown, we should do another sampling in the Vancouver area and we contacted the, our beekeepers and uh, so we wanted to do sampling, you know, and, and one sample per month to see what happened when cars started uh, being more active again and uh, it's a neat little project. I think I know what the answer is going to be but it will be nice to show. And then uh, she's going to continue working on the Salmon studies again with in collaboration with Evgeny, uh, who has last year, within the frame of the year of the Salmon, did a mission in the North Pacific and, and um, towards the Arctic, and to study the Salmons from up there and see if we can see any patterns. Kate mentioned uh, the COVID honey experiment yesterday, and I'm really looking forward to the results of that. Um, yeah. I mean, we know the city got cleaner, but it'd be interesting to have an, a number value of how yeah. much cleaner it is. Now, um, with all this work, uh, um, a lot of the, the science gets done in the field, uh, but you seem to have like five different fields. <laughs> um, do you actually physically get out into the field very often? I try to when I can. Obviously, it's not happening this year. I had enough paperwork to do to, to get the labs to function again, the facility being active, and, and uh, that I decided it wasn't worth 
trying to go, well, first, I don't want to set a foot in an airplane to start with, despite what the airlines say and the epifilters. By the way, all our labs are clean because we have epifilters, these absolute filters that filter 99.9999% of the particles in the air. So I, we know what we're talking about. I don't believe that the air in airplanes is clean. Uh, for various reasons, let's not go there. So I didn't want to go on a plane. Uh, I love going to sample volcanoes. I love taking students on the field, like uh, two years ago when we did the grand finale of um, the magnet program, we took 35 trainees to the big island of Hawaii and uh, we went and um, see an active eruption, that's before the whole uh, Kilauea uh, emptied itself in uh, June, July in uh, 2018, I guess. We were there in February and uh, that was great fun. I must say the day we hiked to the active lava was uh, a bit stressful because first you're hiking on lava that may have consolidated the day before. Uh, you're taking people who are not all in their best physical shape. Uh, even if you ask everybody to bring four liters of water, some only brought a small bottle and that was clearly not enough because it was very hot from the ground. It was very hot from the top. I had a brand new pair of hiking boots and at the end of the day, they were destroyed, which just shows as they were good quality hiking boots, the, the soles was on one side was completely destroyed because it basically got melted away or scratched away by the, the hot lava. Uh, but that aside, it was a very memorable event. The whole trip was a memorable event. So I uh, like to go to C2, which I haven't done for a long time. I've gone uh, on the Joy Death Resolution, the ship of the international, no, it's called Integrated Ocean Discovery Program. That basically means you're gone for two months and that's why I haven't been able to do that recently. I can't really be away from the lab for that long. No, no. Wow. <laughs> Um, so, you know, in your questions, you say not all our scientists wear lab coats, but, you know, some scientists can wear lab coats and can also put hiking boots and go on the field and do that uh, with the same enthusiasm. Absolutely. I mean, I see you working in your lab at times and uh, you look like the, the COVID nurses. You're completely covered from... Uh, I, love, I love being in the lab. I don't have... Usually when I'm in the lab, it means there's a problem and they, they call me for help. Uh, I would love having more time to spend in the lab rather than having to spend my time raising support and uh, and money and things like that. But uh, it's uh, fun. Yeah, and you know, when you know that we analyze concentration at the level of the PPB, we need to be in these clean environments, which is why we have lab coats uh, or shoes stay outside and uh, all our acid have been uh, sub-rolled, so they go to cycles of uh, almost boiling, which means that uh, you separate the impurities from the liquids and we can have very, very clean acids. And it's a very elaborated process. Excellent. Now, um, 
being in the field, I'm sure some crazy things happen. Um, you talked about how you destroyed a pair of hiking boots <laughs> by walking on a volcano. Uh, what else has happened? Or what's your favorite story from the field? Well, uh, the field has always many favorite stories. The first crazy stories was actually in Hawaii, and that was in vacation. That was not to do field work. But it was in, nine, in winter 1985, and we rented the helicopter to go see the lava lake on Kilauea. And the pilot, well, we rented, no, we had a helicopter with a pilot and, and the pilot was actually also on a mission to try to understand how come on the middle of this lava lake, this was this gigantic block of solidified lava that was, when I say gigantic, it was bus size, huh? school bus size, gigantic. Mm -hmm. And so we landed on the side of the, the crater, I mean, on the side of the lava lake, at the bottom of the crater, on the side of the lava lake, on what was solid. And two things happened. The helicopter starts sinking into the lava that was not fully solidified, and our shoe soles melted, especially the pilot. No need to say that we left from there very fast. Luckily, we left without any problem, but uh, that was a, a very interesting experience, uh, very memorable. Um, you know, there are many experiences like when uh, we went to sample, so there that I was on a boat and uh, we were doing our sampling, not on the islands of Hawaii, but at the bottom of the ocean. And for that, we were using uh, JSON the remotely operated vehicle. So you, you spent your time in a container with a, a whole thing like a Houston with all kinds of screen and uh, that's how you control a JSON going down. JSON can to go down to 6,000 meters at the bottom of the ocean. And uh, well, the idea was to have a continuous section of lava I mean, we have a time constraints on, on the composition. Well, first, it's not easy to get a sample with a metal arm, because if you want if you want a time constraint, you need to have your sample in place. And so we had to, took, I think our maximum was six hours to get one sample. But the, yeah, it's a patience game. The other thing that we were trying to do in that same, course was to retrieve Hugo. Hugo was the Hawaiian underwater geophysical observatory. And it was just a just in quote a big metal frame about one and a half meter by one meter by one meter that was containing a telephone relay. And the idea of Hugo was to hear the to listen to the volcano Loi, which is the most I mean, which is basically building up at the bottom of the ocean, and that's going to come to the surface probably in between 400 and 500,000 years. And uh, the cable had been cut between the land and Hugo, and so Hugo was useless. And we had to retrieve Hugo, 
and uh, which turns out that was in two years, Hugo had sank in um, the sediments by about two thirds, and nobody had designed this observatory, this, this observatory to be retrieved. So the first thing we had to do was to attach um, a metal ring so that Hugo could be uh, attached to the cable and pulled to the surface. Uh, that turned out to be a challenge, and uh, the pilot of Jason became frustrated and decided to use the mechanical arm as a hammer to put the, the rig in place, broke the mechanical arm. So we had lost our best tool to sample rocks, and that cost $200,000 and a week waiting to get a replacement. Oh, That's the adventures on the <laughs> well, Dominique, um, that was not what I expected when I asked for crazy field stories, but I'm certainly happy uh, that you shared that one with us. Um, when we say field stories, uh, we don't often think of them occurring at the bottom of the ocean as you're chasing down a lost underwater observatory. Um, but that is the delight of Earth, Ocean, and Atmospheric Sciences. It always throws you a curveball. Uh, as it seems you did today too, um, your science is so unexpected and so interdisciplinary uh, that it's really a delight to learn about. Um, I'm not sure I'm, I'm any closer to saying exactly what kind of scientist you are, um, but you've really opened my mind uh, to what a geochemist can be, uh, from studying honeybees and salmon and uh, the ocean and volcanoes and atmospheric dispersal of contaminants, and I'm sure there's more uh, that you haven't even uh, had a chance to bring up today. Oh, and lasers, of course. We always love lasers. <laughs> but I really want to thank you for participating today and contributing to the uh, Pacific Museum of Earth's Quarantine Conversations podcast series. And I wish you all the best as you get back into the lab uh, as hopefully COVID winds down. So thank you.